Why don't we just, just stretch your legs a little bit, just move around. I'm, I can't even spot Jürgen. Where is he? He's there. there he is. Jürgen, why don't you put your hands together. Let's give a huge warm welcome to Jürgen. And he's going to open God's word for us. Oh, I got this one. Mark is working his magic. Oh, yes. That sounds great. So, good morning. I'm Jürgen, for those who don't know me. And uh, I've been part of this church for about five years or so. And uh, for some odd reason, the leaders trust me to ever so often say something here. <laughs> so if I, can, if I can find a list of my notes, then I will, um, I will, do, I will do that. Uh, as Oli said already, we're in a series uh, that's called Who is Jesus? Who am I? Uh, beautiful graphics done there, quite grungy as I used to like them. And uh, yeah, so we're gonna we're gonna look at this today. Uh, we've got Romans five today. If we can have the first slide up. Um, so far, we've seen the, the introduction into Romans, and we've seen um, the way Paul talks about grace and about us. Today, we have a different subject, and it's sin, death, and us. I gave it a subtitle because. I feel like I'm entitled to do that uh, when I'm preaching. Actions, consequences, and reversal. So this is going to be Romans 5. As, as already said, we're not going through all Romans. We're trying to pick something. We're trying to see what does Paul in this letter and the Holy Spirit through him, what does it tell us about Jesus and what does it tell us about us? So if you're ready, I would like to start by uh, reading the chapter. I think I still need glasses. Please excuse my heavy accent. It's not East European, it's German. So, Romans 5, I think we also got it up on screen, or will. Uh, I'm reading the Lexham English Bible version. Romans 5, uh, starting with verse 1. Therefore, because we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. And not only this, but we also boast in our afflictions, because we know that affliction produces patient endurance, and patient endurance, proven character, and proven character, hope. And hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who was given to us. For while we were still helpless, yet at the proper time Christ died for the ungodly. For only rarely will someone die on behalf of a righteous person. For on behalf of a good person, possibly, someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love, his own love for us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Therefore, by much more, because we have been declared righteous now by his blood, we will be saved through him from the wrath. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, by much more having been reconciled, we will be saved by his life. And not only this, but also we are boasting in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Because of this, just as sin has entered into the world through one man and death through sin, so also death spread to all people because all sinned.
For until the law, the sin was in the world, but sin is not charged to one's account when there is no law. But death reigned from Adam till Moses, even over those who did not sin in the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who is a type of the one who is to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the trespass of the one, the many died, by much more did the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, multiply to the many. And the gift is not as though the one who sinned for the one for on the one hand, judgment from the one sin led to condemnation, but the gift from many trespasses led to justification. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through the one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. Consequently, therefore, as through one trespass came condemnation to all people, so also, through one righteous deed, came justification of life to all people. For just as through, as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Now the law came as a side issue, in order that the trespass could increase, but where sin increased, grace was present in greater abundance, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Romans 5. It's quite difficult to read such a chapter. Shall we pray? Father God, thank you for allowing us today to have your thoughts written down for us. Thank you for using Paul to write those words for us. Thank you for us being together now, eager to study and to learn what it is about you and what it is about us and what the plan is. And Lord Jesus, we humbly ask you today as a church, we want to put a big hole into the reign of darkness. Help us, Holy Spirit. Amen. All right. So, who is Jesus and who am I? That is the question we try to answer today. That's the title of the series, so if there is a title to a series, we should be faithful and try to deal with it. Um, I would like to start with I. Who am I? Although if you were carefully looking into the passage, or if you still have your Bible open, you will see that there is no I in Romans 5. But there's a lot of we and us. I think in this passage, we should replace who am I with who are we or who is us. I think it's important in a society where we tend to make Christianity like an individual kind of thing. Oh, it's up to you, if you like it, good for you, if it works for you. But it wasn't like that for, for a, a huge amount of the time of church history. So why don't we today talk about we? In the passage we just read, we are the ones who are declared righteous by faith. You have been declared righteous by faith. Who is Jesus in this context? He is the one who did what? He mediates access to grace. And in another verse, it says he multiplies grace. We have been declared righteous by faith because Jesus created access to that. 
You can be declared righteous by faith because there is this thing called grace. It's an unmeritable favor of God towards us. And not only is there one grace, take it or leave it, but it's been multiplied to us through Jesus. You would think, oh, you have no idea who I am. You have no idea what I did. Grace sounds great, but it's not good enough for me. Well, good news, the grace has been multiplied. Yeah, but I also did this. Yeah, and there's more grace. Yeah, but I also did all the other things. Yes, and there's more grace for that if you've been declared righteous by faith. If you pledged your allegiance to Jesus, then you have been declared righteous by faith. And when I say you, remember, we're talking about you. We're talking about us. We're talking about we. It's this common thing that we have as a family that defines us. We have been declared righteous by our common faith. Also, the passage says we were sinners. I don't want to challenge your grammar, but to me, were is not today. Were is past tense. And we have to state that. We have to be aware and we have to readily acknowledge, yes, we were sinners. But what did Jesus do then? If you look in that table, he died on behalf of us. He is the obedient one. Wherever you have been disobedient to the law of God, to the requirements of God, of his holiness, and of his idea of how the world should be run, wherever you failed, he was obedient. Not only that, he took the punishment. And we know punishment for disobeying God is death. Now, just imagine you have this little lamp on your nightstand beside your bed, on your bedside table, yeah? Unless it's run on battery, which we will ignore for today, that thing has to be plugged in. And in the UK, you also have to turn on that little switch so energy comes to the light bulb and you have light next to your bed. What is the punishment of the light on your bedside table for being unplugged from the socket? Darkness. Is it a punishment or is it a consequence? If you disconnect from the source of life who is God, then you will die. Is that a punishment or is it a consequence? I'll let you deal with that, yeah? But it's just we have to rethink what we think about God and his punishment. And you will see why that's relevant today. Also, Romans says we were ungodly. That means we, we were atheists, really. That, that's the word used there, atheists. We didn't believe in any God. Or certainly not in the God of the Bible. Now what happens to those who do not believe that God is king? They just act as if God doesn't exist. And that's kind of like an insult, if you ask me. So what should God do about that? What should the king do about all, all, all the people in his land that do not obey him? What are they normally called? Rebels? What do you do with rebels? Well, you have to purge the kingdom of rebels. But then you have Jesus coming in. And whenever and wherever we were ungodly, what did he do? He saves us from that wrath. You will not gonna be executed for your rebellion. That's what Jesus did for us. 
And then also in the same kind of strand of ideas, Paul says that when we were enemies, Jesus died for us. He brings reconciliation. Jesus brings reconciliation and he mediates a peace with God. There's a lot of talk these days about mediating a peace in different areas and different um, wars and conflicts. But who will mediate between us and God? Who will reconcile us to God when we were rebels and we were enemies of God? How can this be turned around? Jesus is the answer. Who is Jesus? He's the one who brings reconciliation. He's the one who mediates peace with God. Now, could have we done different? Could have we gone down a different path where we did not rebel, where we did not become enemies of God, where we were not sinners and ungodly? We don't know. But history tells us that we ended up in this place. And Paul gives us a little hint. When we were helpless. What does that mean? Unable. You were unable in your own resources to be okay with God. It's a total inability of living up to the expectation of a perfect and holy creator God. And that's quite tragic. And that's when Jesus comes in. He is the means to reign in life. It's not only going from being helpless to kind of able. You are reigning in life like a king. That square meter you're standing on is given to you to reign over it. Whatever happens in this little box between your ears, it's given to you to reign what was your original state? Helpless. Even today, some people think, oh, you cannot control your thoughts. Really? Well, either your thoughts are not part of your life, or Paul is not right when he says, you can reign in this life through Christ Jesus, the Lord. In another passage, he says, you know what? We take captives every thought that opposes God. How do you do that? Well, just like a king. This is the kingdom and you are the king, and you take control. Through whom? Through Jesus. There's all kinds of thoughts coming to you. What are you going to do? I think it was attributed to Martin Luther who said, you cannot prevent the crows flying around your head, but you can prevent them from making a nest there. I kind of like the image of it. There's plenty of crows in Eastbourne. Just next time you see them, remember, you have control upon what you're thinking. So who is Jesus and who are we? Jesus is basically the solution to our biggest problem. Jesus does what we cannot do because we are helpless. And now we're in a much better position. We've been reconciled, we have peace with God, we have become obedient, we escaped the wrath of God, we, we have peace, we reign in life, we have been declared righteous by faith. Is that good? We should go home now. That's enough for a week, just to think about. Take a walk by Hamden Park, look at the cross, yeah, and just, just deal with the thoughts in your head. Because I tell you, there are many thoughts going through your head. I know that. Guess how I know? What's the conclusion of this bit of Romans 5? At a time of our total inability, God demonstrates his love for us by dying for us. What's more unable than being unable? 
It's not a joke. What is it? It's being dead. Dead, being dead is worse than being unable. Now look what happens here. In our time of our total inability, Jesus died for us. He went underneath to pull us out of that state of total inability. That's what he did. And by this, he brought us righteousness, which is like the correct standing with God, a good relationship. We have salvation from the wrath. You shall not fear the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord comes like a fire that burns everything, and you shall stand. Why? You have been declared righteous by faith, and you're reconciled with God. There's nothing, if you're in Christ Jesus, that God would hold against you anymore. And all this is a gift of favor. We sang today about grace, but just for the sake of, you know, training our thoughts, let's just forget all those words, not forget, but ignore those words we're very familiar with and use ones who are like today's language. It's a gift of favor, and that's grace. And how does that come to us? It comes if we show believing loyalty, which is just another definition of faith. Have you seen that line in Romans where it says that Jesus' death reconciled us? And then how much more are we saved by his life? That's not very often how we speak about it. We say, oh, I'm being saved by the death of Jesus. Well, not according to Paul. You've been reconciled with God by the death of Jesus. But your salvation came through his life. We can't go into all the details, but I, that's meaningful. The way Jesus lived, you're called to live. And that's a, a telling sign of your salvation. You have been saved by his life. His life in eternity, his existence with God, that's something that saves you because he is God. His life on earth saves you because what he did there is to show what God is like. And his life post-resurrection is the one that saves you because eventually he will come and trample your enemies. Eventually he will come and avenge you in the face of those who were your personal enemies. This should be a time of worship now, yeah? Enough to thank God for that? Well, there's the other little bit at the end of the passage of Romans which I want to dive into just because, you know, who is Jesus and who are we? Or who am I? I called it from one to all. It's not that famous song, all for one and one for all. It's from one to all. And this is important because that's, if, if, if words were highlighted, you would see it all over the place. In Romans, in the second part in Romans 5, it says, one man and the many. They're kind of like put in two different camps. And the one man, who is that? Well, there's two answers, really. The one man is Adam, and the one man is Christ Jesus. And then in the other camp, it's us. So let's look at that. Adam, the one, he sinned, and sin and death came and entered the whole world from one to all. By that, death has come to all. Now, I want to pause here a little bit just because some of you are Bible nerds and you will love this. And you probably saw it already. Why has death come to the whole earth? Why did death come to all people who ever lived? 
And now you're careful because the standard answer would be, oh, because of Adam and because he sinned. No, it says, for all have sinned. That's why we're dying, because we all have sinned. But death has come into the realm of the humans because of sin. And sin and death have come into the realm of humans through the only humans who ever existed. Basically, the whole human race, Adam and Eve, brought sin and death into our reality. Adam the one trespassed, and because of that, because of that, we died and death has reigned. If you ask what's the biggest fear, I was, I was chatting to Ollie the other day, how we as humans are so much driven by what we hope and what we fear. It's one of the good mission strategies if you go and want to plant a church in a place and you don't really know it, get familiar, get a job, start talking to people and start to find out two things. What are the biggest hopes and what are the biggest fears? There was a time when I was traveling in, in Romania from, from the city where I lived, quite in the middle of, of the map of Romania, to one of the old uh, king's cities in Moldova, uh, the kingdom of Moldova, not the republic. And to do that, you had to cross the Carpathian Mountains. And right across the Carpathian Mountains was a town. And I once ended up there, the van I was driving, the clutch broke, so I was going to do some training there, Ward Plus and some leadership training, and the clutch broke and I knew, oh, this is, again, darkness. <laughs> darkness doesn't like when we do that kind of Jesus stuff. And so, yeah, we had to find a, a garage, take the car there, leave it there, find out means of paying them, and then travel on by bus. And getting from that car service to the bus station, I took a taxi. And my mind was buzzing with mission and all that kind of stuff. And I thought, it's a good opportunity. He can't hop off the cab, the taxi, because he's driving me. So we're going to have this conversation. I asked him, sir, tell me, tell me, are you, are you local? He said, yeah, yeah, born here, I live here. So, Do you mind if I ask you a question? No, not at all. What is the biggest fear of people living here? He just literally turned around like, never thought about that. I said, think about it. He was driving and said, I think the biggest fear of us here is being meaningless. I said, why would you say that? No one comes to this town for the town's reason. Either they want to go to Transylvania or they want to go to Moldova. It's just a passing point. We're just a means to someone else's ends. And I thought, see, that's a very wise taxi driver. He figured it out. And I said, is there any hope? And that was a bit sad because that hope, nah, there's no hope here. I want to get out, move somewhere else. But, but what I'm saying is hope drives us. Hope drives us and fear drives us. What's the biggest fear humans have ever faced? You know it. Death. And death has reigned because of the transgression of one and because we all have sinned. Now there's the other the one, which is not Adam, because we just read Adam was a type. He was like a, a clay model. What's the real thing then? What's the real deal? It's Jesus. He's the second Adam, 
defined in another place. He is the one. And he, what did he bring? He brought grace. And because of that, the gift of grace has multiplied to all of us. Do you like the idea that one makes a mistake and everyone pays for it? Do you remember in class? I don't know what school was like in England, but where I come from, you went in school and one was just chatting around in class. The teacher said, oi, stop it. And eventually, you know, the whole class got punished. It's like, that's not fair. But then is it fair that one dies for all of us and we all reap the benefits of grace and being in peace with God and reconciled? Well, that's not fair either, is it? But that's how it works. We don't like the first bit of it. We don't like the first instance of one to all, but the second one proves to be the genius of the cosmic mastermind because that's the big reversal. That's the big reversal where everything that ever has been gone wrong is being made right. And that's due to Jesus from one to all. Yes, we have the old Adam, but yes, we have the new one. And the old one brought the whole race into disaster and chaos, and the second one started a new race, which is exactly the opposite. It's order and glory and meaningfulness and hope and all that stuff in it. We should stop now, but we won't, because as is my habit, I brought my sandwich. I like sharing my sandwich with people I like, and you're part of that bunch. But not only that, not only will I share my sandwich of Romans 5, but I will show you how it's made, and then you can make your own sandwich of Romans 5 whenever you need it. There's going to be times when you need to remember Romans 5, and I'll show you how this works. So, there is a layer in this text. I think the obvious stuff we treated, and if you want to, there's some middle-aged people who wrote brilliant books about grace and faith and sin. So, um, for, I mean, from the Middle Ages, yes? <laughs> oh, the languages, don't you love them? But if you dig, you will find another layer, and I'm sure in about a month's time, you will come back to me and say, Jürgen, I found yet another layer to what you said, and I'm looking forward to that. Let's look at another layer and let's, let's allow scripture to inform our worldview and interpretation of what happens to us because that's where we often mess it up. We do not interpret things that happen to us in a way that scripture intends us to do it. There's a question. As you were in the thick of a very unpleasant circumstance that made you suffer, have you ever had that thought that God must be angry with you and punishing you for something you know you did wrong. Am I the only one? Has it ever happened to you that something goes terribly wrong and you're suffering and this thought creeps up in your mind? Oh, this is because of, you know, remember? Did it ever happen to you? We can give glory to God by saying yes, if it happened. Your spiritual instincts, if you're a follower of Jesus, rebel in you against that thought. Something in you 
doesn't feel right about the thought that God is punishing you for something you have done. And that's why you're suffering. And your instincts are right. You're born of the Spirit. The Spirit is witnessing in you. No, 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 no. That is a lie. Well, but then how is it a lie? Because that feeling of me paying for what I've done just doesn't go away. Yes, I believe in Jesus. You know, my head knows all the right things, but that feeling just doesn't go away. Another one. Were you ever this close? Were you ever this close of giving up on Jesus? Were you ever this close on giving up on believing or on giving up on church as we know it? Maybe you've been wounded in the warfare because that's what it is. We live in a different kingdom and the world just hates us. Jesus said, yeah, they're going to hate us. Jesus said, actually, you know what? I send you out like, uh, like lambs amongst wolves. Now, what are the chances? There is a war out there. And in this war, sometimes you get wounded. You get hurt. And sometimes you take friendly fire. It's your mates you trusted, and they betray you. Guess what? It happens to Jesus, too. It did. Were you ever this close on giving up on God because of that? Maybe you have been steamrolled by some religious organization of sorts. Just completely run over, obliterated. Or maybe your desperate prayers for rescue, for change, for healing, for reconciliation, you name it. Maybe your prayers didn't get the answer you wanted and you came this close to give up on Jesus and on faith and on the church. Surely I'm not the only one. We don't like to talk about it, but you will see in a minute why it is important in a protected environment like this one, and even if you're online, you're welcome. I know friends of mine are watching. There's moments we have to talk about this reality because otherwise, how can we be family? There is hope if you answer yes to any of those two questions thinking that God is punishing you or being that close to giving up on faith and on Jesus and on the church. There is hope and not just any kind. Today, I want to show you my sandwich. I was very tempted to actually make a sandwich and now peel it apart, but I can't be asked to clean up the mess. <laughs> there, is, there is this phrase which we read, and I look, I'm... I'm familiar with a few languages, and I looked it up in all of them, and it's just one awkward phrase. Boasting in the hope of the glory of God. Who talks like that? How can you boast in the hope of the glory of God, and you kind of like expect it to go on and on and on and, and not make sense of any? How are we boasting in the hope of the glory of God? And then later on it says, we're boasting in afflictions. What? Why would, why would I boast in my afflictions? Who in his right mind would do that? 
And I invite you now into my kitchen. This is how I cook my sandwich. I lean back and I start thinking, well, glory, what is it? And how did people react to it? And it's a fascinating rabbit hole, we can't go down. But in verse two of chapter five, it talks about the glory of God, about the hope of the glory of God. What is it? There's one guy I found in the old scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, who was so keen on understanding the glory of God that he went up a mountain, his name is Moses, he was receiving the tablets with the law and you know the covenant between God and his people, and up on the mountain he said, God, if I found favor in your eyes, I, I see you didn't kill me, so I take that as you kind of like me, or at least you don't hate me enough to kill me, right? So if I found favor in your eyes, please show me your glory. That's Exodus 33, verse 18. Moses said, please show me your glory. He has seen the glory of God before. If you, we don't have time to go through all that. But he says, please show me your glory. Now I let you guess, did God show him his glory or not? If we have the next slide, you will see the answer. This is what he got instead. A declaration of God's character. Now that's odd, because Jesus said, guys, you're so bad, but still, if your kid asks you for a piece of bread, you don't give them stones, and if your daughter asks you for a piece of fish, you don't give them a snake, how much more does the good Father in heaven give good things to the ones who ask? Now, that's the same God, isn't it? And Moses said, I want to see your glory. What did he get? He get a declaration, he got a declaration of God's character. Exodus 34, it is, you can read it up. God speaks. God defines himself. Basically, God is saying, if you want to see my glory, then think about how I am, what I am like. And this is it. Yahweh, Yahweh, God, who is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding with loyal love and faithfulness, keeping loyal love to the thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and he does not leave utterly unpunished, punishing the guilt of fathers on sons and on sons of sons on third and fourth generations. That's not what Moses expected, and that's probably not what you would expect if you ask God, show me your glory. There's many facets to God's glory, lots of them. Some are visible, some are tangible, some do something to you when you meet God's glory. Usually you feel like you're dying and just look up the prophets. But there's this other facet which God thought Moses should know and it's written down for us so that we can know. God, show me your glory. And this is how God wants to think about his glory. His glory both preserves and consumes. So what really matters is where you stand. If you found favor in God's eyes, and that happens through Jesus, we talked about it, then God's glory preserves you. He's slow to anger. You might make mistakes. You might mess it up. You might become disobedient and rebellious again. But he's slow to anger, slow to anger. He will get angry, but very slowly and you have time to repent and come back. But if you don't, 
that same glory will consume you. And maybe that's not good news for you. But if you're here or if you're listening, and if you've been abused, if, if maybe you've been in sex trafficking or in other kinds of slavery, there's one thing you want, and that's justice. And tell you what, God will bring justice. Well, even those abusers, if they repent from their sin, they will be saved. But if not, there's going to be one day when everything will be made right, and God is your vengeance, not yourself. Just relax in his peace, in his reconciliation, because he will take care of it. Not today, and not tomorrow, perhaps, but one day he will, because that's part of his glory. He will not leave the wicked unpunished. God is very much inclined to deal kindly with us, and punishment is not his first reaction. Let me say that again. Punishment is not his first reaction. Can we go back to those thoughts? When something bad happens to you and you feel like God is punishing you? Now we got a layer on our sandwich. Put it on there. Either you're utterly rebellious and do not want to please God, and then you won't have this question anyway, or you're in Christ Jesus, and then he is slow to anger towards you. Punishment is not his first reaction. Now, let's go back to the phrase, how are we boasting in the hope of the glory of God? Let's try and rephrase that. If the glory of God Part of the glory of God is his character, where he's slow to anger, very compassionate, kind, graceful, long-loving, perseverant in his love towards us. If that's part of his glory, is that hope for you? Yes. It is for me and, and for someone here in the front row. <laughs> and maybe for someone else. But there is hope in the glory of God. And we boast in this hope. I'm not great because I'm great. I will be great because he makes me great. I feel rubbish, but he will make me great. I'm boasting in the hope that God is compassionate and gracious. That's what I want to boast about. My God is compassionate and gracious. My God is abounding with loyal love. Loyal love, not just any love. Everlasting, loyal love. And he's forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and you name it. He's forgiving. That's the God we boast about. That's the God Paul boasted about. There's a hope in it. Also, there's hope that he will not leave it unpunished. Look at this, James 5. I don't like too much topical preach, but I thought I'd bring this one in. It's not Romans, but it's on the same subject. Look at James the brother of Jesus, what he thought about this. He was reflecting on a story of Job. Verse 11 says, Behold, we consider blessed those who have endured. You have heard about the patient endurance of Job. We all know Job. And you saw the outcome from the Lord. Oh yeah, lots of camels and he had kids again and he was famous again. No. James's reflection is different. He said the outcome from the Lord is that the Lord is compassionate and merciful. In all that Job went through, God was compassionate and merciful. How close was Job on giving up? This close. 
His missus said, you know what? I make it easy for you. I know this little trick. You curse God and you die. And he said, nope. Nope. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. And look at the outcome. There's, there's many ways you can study Job. But would you ever have reached the conclusion after reading all those chapters of Job that God is compassionate and merciful? I certainly wouldn't have. But then we have the other apostles who help us. So that is important. How do we then boast in our afflictions? I understand if you say, oh, and that's why we endure afflictions. No, we boast in them. Why? Because there's a principle we read about. Affliction produces patient endurance. And patient endurance produces a proven character. Your proven character. And the proven character produces hope. And then verse 5 is brilliant. And it gives us the reason why this all works out as it does. Romans 5.5, because, and that's the reason why, the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. We boast in our afflictions and we boast in Christ Jesus because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. You will endure because the love of God was poured out into your heart when you received Christ as your king. And not only that, but there's the Holy Spirit who has been given. And gee, I wonder why. What does the giving of the Holy Spirit have to do with affliction? Can you see it? I just pulled apart the layers of my sandwich. You need the Holy Spirit in your afflictions to endure, to stay faithful, to not give up even if you're that close. Nothing wrong with being that close. It's wrong giving up. So today as a family, we stand together and we don't give up. Amen? We do not give up because the love of God has been poured into our heart. It's not my heart. And being filled with the Spirit is not I'm filled with the Spirit, it's us. We are filled with the Spirit. There's some people who probably can read a little bit of New Testament Greek. You will see that in Ephesians when it said, be filled with the Spirit. It's a plural. Now, you know what happens now? We are filled with the Spirit. Me, alongside you, we are filled with the Spirit. Because we're going to go out there, there's a war out there, there's shooting going on. But you will persevere. You will stand and you will move on and we together we will put a dent into darkness at least, if not blow it to pieces. One day Jesus will come and he will nuke it. But until then, we, even if I scratch the black car, I will do it. I will do it. Because Jesus came to destroy the works of the devils and we're, we're called to just, I'm getting a bit excited. Why does this matter? This matters because so often we are afflicted when we think we must have done something wrong and God is punishing us for that. Please, today, do not allow that crow to land in your mind. This is not the case if you pledge your loyalty to Jesus. It's all about building a proven character. So afflictions aren't that bad if you know that you can persevere and if you know that God is with you we can't talk now about Daniel in the lion's den and all the other bits and, you know, his friends in the, in the hot, whatever, melting fire. 
God was with them there, and he's with you wherever you are. Just don't give up. Do you understand now why you need the Holy Spirit? It's not only about the exciting show bit. It's about that secret thing happening in you where you suddenly find the strength, the strength to stand up again and do it again. You're righteous and you might fall, but you stand up again and you, you fight darkness again. You need the Holy Spirit. You need to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the context of a community to endure whenever things become tough. We get very excited. Recently we had a baptism at Easter morning, remember? Were you excited? Come on, you're allowed to. I am excited. I mean, those stories, come on. Yeah? People being added to this family of God. People being prayed for. People being filled with the Spirit. And we do celebrate that, and we should, and rightly so. When the bandstand, is, is there any baptisms happening then? Oh, well, yeah. More time to be excited about. But today, I want to I wanna shift our attention a little bit to those unsung heroes who never make the stage, or rarely do they make the stage. But it's those people who didn't give up on Jesus. And I think as a family and as a church, we should learn to appreciate perseverance. You've been blessed in this country. You didn't have persecution. You didn't have oppressive regimes, not recently. But that's a big blessing. Nevertheless, there's people in other places who suffer for being a follower of Jesus. And nevertheless, there's people here in this country who have huge disadvantages because they are followers of Jesus. And you know what I'm talking about. But today, I would like us to honor those people. I would also like the band to come up because we, we draw to a close. Uh, but if you're one of those who were that close to giving up on Jesus and faith and church, I would invite you to stand. And I would invite you to stand with me because I'm not the only one. I'm sure I'm not the only one who was ever that close to leaving faith and Jesus and the church. I would like you to stand with me if you're one of those because we all want to honor you and we all want to give a testimony. Anyone? Anyone? I'm sure there might be more. Don't be ashamed. Perseverance is good. Why don't we all give them a big round of applause because they stay. I'm pretty much done with this. I would like to pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for what you are. You're the faithful one. 
thank you for all that you did for us. We thank you that you are continuing to undo the works of the devil. You've rescued us from wrath. Your life saves us. We have been reconciled and we have peace with God now. With a God who is merciful, slow to anger, forever loyal in his love towards us. And you've given us your, you've given us your spirit so we can stand and move on and conquer darkness and participate in the undoing of the chaos. Lord Jesus, today as a church, we together, not as individuals this time, but as a, as a group of your family, we stand and humbly ask you, please fill us again with your spirit now so that we can stand in times of affliction and hardness, so that we can celebrate wherever there's anything to celebrate, new life or old life, new allegiances to Jesus and old loyalty to Jesus, both. Holy Spirit, fill us up again so we can be faithful witnesses of what you have done in our life. Faithful witnesses to the fact that you are changing this world forever and there is no undoing to what you are doing. You are bringing your kingdom and nothing can stop it, not even the gates of hell. That's why we stand, because you're the faithful one, Jesus. You're the second Adam and we have been now planted in you. We've been we've become part of your family. We've been we've been put into this trunk, this solid life-giving trunk. We are plugged in and life is flowing through us because of you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, that you're here. You are God. You are God's personal presence. And you will keep us through today and through the week and the month and the year and how long it takes until you come back, Jesus.